Well, good morning. We're going to uh, we're going to go ahead and get started. So um, let's pray. I'll pray for us, and then uh, and then we'll get uh, started. So while I'm praying, if you want to go ahead and make your way in here and uh, and grab a seat. Uh, by the way, if you're not uh, sitting next to somebody, there'll be a couple of times where we do a little bit of discussion uh, today, so I would uh, take the prayer time as an opportunity to make sure you're around one or two other people uh, that you can uh, discuss with. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity we have to uh, consider uh, who you are and who you've revealed yourself to be, and so I pray that you would help us, Lord, that you would help us to uh, be attentive this morning as, uh, as we consider these things, as we consider your word, and, uh, and in services today as we consider uh, what is a very uh, countercultural uh, sensitive uh, conversation, and uh, so would you give us uh, hearts that are inclined toward your word and uh, eyes that are enabled to uh, to see clearly, and, uh, and so bless us this morning, we ask, because you're a good father and you give good gifts, so we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, we're going to talk about incommunicable attributes, part do today, and, uh, and so as we do, I want to begin with just a little bit of discussion and so, again, make sure you're around at least one other person that you can have uh, some discussion with. And here's the question. I want you to spend the next couple of minutes just uh, answering uh, this question. How would you describe God? How would you describe God? So wherever that conversation goes in your little groups, that is totally appropriate. Uh, so your goal is just to describe God, and you'll have about uh, three to five minutes or so to do that. All right, that, uh, that should have at least gotten some of the neurons firing and so forth. What, uh, what were some of the uh, ways that you would describe God? Somebody just shout out something. <laughs> Thank you, Chris Tomlin. <laughs> All-knowing, yeah, there you go. Sovereign, wise, loving, holy, jealous. Holy, 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 yes. Times three. Holy cubed. What someone said? Creator, yeah. Just, yeah. So we could go on and on. All of these things, uh, surprisingly, actually are attributes. There are various ways that you can describe God. One of the ways that you can describe God is you can attempt to describe his nature. That's what we spent the first couple of weeks together this semester doing as we talked about uh, uh, God's triune nature, uh, that he is a God who is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, each person being uh, fully or truly uh, God. That's one way that you can describe God, is try to uh, articulate his nature according to the bounds that Scripture gives. Another way that you could uh, attempt to describe God is just kind of go through the names of Scripture. What are some of the names that we see of God in Scripture? Yahweh, yeah, that's the big one. It's this kind of personal name, covenantal uh, name. You also see things like El Shaddai, uh, that Amy Grant song, and, uh, and so on and on. You could go with all of these different uh, names that we get in Scripture. But the third way, uh, and, and the way that most of you articulated a description of God, is through uh, attributes. So what are attributes? Characteristics, right? They are words that describe what something is 
like. And uh, so when we talk about God's attributes, we are using words that are attempting to describe what God is like. And those uh, attributes are typically kind of, uh, kind of uh, segregated into these two different categories. We have communicable attributes and we have incommunicable attributes. Zach started us uh, talking last week about incommunicable attributes. We'll finish that uh, today and then next week transition into uh, communicable communicable attributes, and we'll do two weeks of that. And uh, we talked about how most of us, when we uh, hear the word communicable versus incommunicable, we tend to think of what? Diseases, right? And so the first time I ever learned the word communicable was from my local swimming pool because it said no one with a communicable disease. I said, what's a communicable disease? I learned the meaning of the word through that. That's how we tend to think of communicable as something that can be what? Caught or shared, right? And so God's communicable attributes are things that he shares with his uh, creation, with his creatures, whereas his incommunicable attributes are things that he does not share with his uh, creatures, although some of those lines are blurry a bit. And so as we're going to think about it in, uh, for our purposes of our class today, I want us to think about this, that incommunicable attributes are ways that we're unlike God. Communicable attributes are more ways that we are like God. Incommunicable represent ways that we are not like God, and communicable represent ways that we are like God. So let me give you three sort of opening clarifications before we get to uh, the, the bulk of our talk about incommunicable attributes. So the first one, as we talk about these attributes and as we talk about the word incommunicable, the first thing that we have to do is we have to remember that when we talk about incommunicable attributes, we're not using the root word communicate in the way that we normally would. If I say I'm going to communicate something to you, what am I saying? I'm gonna tell you about that thing, right? So God communicates even his incommunicable attributes in the sense that God tells us that he has these incommunicable attributes. The same way that I can communicate that I have an incommunicable disease to you. I'm telling you that I have this, whatever this disease is. And so when we think of God's incommunicable attribute, these are not things that God doesn't describe. They're things that God doesn't share with his, uh, with his creation. So that's the first clarification. Uh, the second clarification is that, uh, and we mentioned this a little last week, and I just mentioned it a little bit, but there is not a hard and fast line between incommunicable and communicable attributes. Oftentimes, it's kind of like a Venn diagram, oftentimes there is an overlap uh, between the two. There is a sense in which even some of God's incommunicable attributes, he communicates with his creatures. And there's a sense in which even his communicable attributes are not communicated with his creatures. Let me give you an example of that. Today we're going to talk about uh, omniscience. What is omniscience? It's, it's that God is all-knowing, all right? So omniscience is knowledge to the highest degree. That is incommunicable. But what is communicable is that you and I are knowing creatures, right? We're rational creatures. We utilize knowledge. So God communicates knowledge to us, just not omniscience to us. So you see how even the lines between the two begin to blur? Or consider the fact that uh, in the next couple of weeks as we talk about communicable attributes, we'll talk about God's goodness God communicates his goodness to us or his love to us. But what's not communicated is the holiness of those things, the utter uh, separateness of God's holiness or his goodness or his love or whatever it might be, that there is a sense in which even his communicable attributes are not communicated in their, uh, their quantity. So 
so that is the, the second sort of clarification that some of the things that we talk about, even uh, all of these attributes that we talk about today, there is a sense in which you could think of them in either the communicable or incommunicable a- uh, category, depending on what you mean uh, by it. And then the third thing, we've talked about this a number of times, but just as a reminder, that all of our language is going to be uh, limited that we can go to the Bible and we can expect to see there uh, an opportunity for us to think of God and to speak of God truly and rightly, but never should we go to the Bible and think that we're going to there be able to comprehend him fully. There's a difference between understanding God rightly, understanding God truly, and understanding God fully. And, uh, and so not only are we finite and God is infinite, but, uh, but language itself is somewhat limited in being able to describe this infinite God. Uh, it's kind of like uh, the example I thought of uh, last week was uh, Carl. So Carl, some of you know this, some of you don't. Carl has a uh, master's degree in French horn performance. He's a really good French hornist. I don't know what it's called. Uh, but, uh, but he's really good. He was a professional musician for a while. But we have a shofar uh, here, a shofar is uh, like an ancient Israeli horn made out of like a, a ram's horn. And, uh, and so whenever he does that, he cannot play songs on it, right? He couldn't uh, belt out, I don't know any songs that you can belt out on a French horn, because I don't know anything about French horns, but whatever songs he could play on a French horn, he can't play on a shofar. Why? Because it's a limited instrument. In the same way, our language is limited, uh, and, uh, and so as we are articulating these thoughts about God, recognize the, uh, the fact that God is condescending to use human language as he describes himself. We talked about this last week a little bit, that, that uh, language is uh, anthropomorphic. Does anybody remember what anthropomorphism is? Anthropomorphism is when God is going to condescend to describe himself using uh, terminology of mankind. Anthropos means man. Morph means the form. So God is uh, speaking of himself as if he is a man. That's why you'll see in Scripture that God's a mighty right hand or something like that. Does God actually have a hand? Well, Jesus has a hand, but does God himself, the, the eternal God who exists as three persons? No, he doesn't have a hand. Does God have eyes, the eyes of the Lord go about? Uh, no, God doesn't have eyes. He doesn't have ears and, and all of these uh, sorts of things. But that's what we see throughout the scripture is that language is God is condescending to use human language. So uh, we're going we're to speak of God rightly, but we're never going to speak of him uh, fully. So with all of those uh, caveats sort of in place, let's begin to talk about some of these incommunicable attributes. And I want to start with uh, holiness. Holiness is the, the first one there. So again, bearing in mind that, uh, that even some of these incommunicable attributes are communicable in some sense. God certainly calls his people and makes his people holy. He's called his people to holiness hundreds of times throughout the scripture. You shall be holy for I am holy. So there's a sense in which God communicates his holiness uh, to us, but his holiness is altogether different from our holiness. I think about it like this. You think of uh, if you were to leave your car in the sun all day long uh, in the middle of the summer here in Texas, at the end of the day, that car is going to be sweltering. There is going to be heat filling that car, but that heat is different from the sun itself. And so likewise, God communicates his holiness to us, but it is an altogether different holiness than uh, he himself uh, possesses. So when, we, when we're talking about incommunicable attributes, we talked about this last week, we're talking about God's transcendence. 
ways that he is unlike us. And few attributes of God really convey the, the infinite, uh, infinite nature of his transcendence, like this idea of holiness. Uh, in fact, otherness, separateness, difference, being distinct, that, that is what the idea, the concept of holiness is going to uh, connote. So if you have the, the passage there from Isaiah 6 in your notes, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of his threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And he said, Woe is me, for I am lost, and I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is the, uh, this is the response, the proper response to the holiness of God. This is someone who has just encountered God. That, uh, that tripling there of holy, we, we made a joke about it earlier, holiness cubed, holy, holy, holy. That's uh, really interesting if you are to read the entire scripture. This is the only place where you see God's attributes being tripled like that. In, uh, in, in uh, the, the Hebrew language, they don't have some of the adverbs and modifiers that we have, like the word very. They don't have like very holy. They would just double it. They would just say holy, holy. Uh, in, uh, in Genesis uh, chapter 3 where it says, uh, in the day you eat of it, surely you will die. We have this word surely to, to make it emphatic in English. They don't have that. In, uh, in Hebrew, it literally says you will die, die. You will like doubly die. Like that's how they emphasize something. And so this is very distinct. It's not only emphasizing, it's emphasizing to the third degree. Uh, and so however holy you think he is, he is that much more holy. It's not only doubled, it's tripled here. This is the response to the holiness of uh, God. And ironically, I think there is this sense in which the more that you begin to realize God's holiness, how holy he actually is, the more that you actually begin to be like him. You actually become uh, more holy in a sense. That as we reflect upon him, uh, Second, uh, Second Corinthians talks about that we are transformed into his image as we behold his glory and so forth. We become more uh, like him. But ironically, even as you're becoming more like him, you probably feel less and less like him. Has anyone ever experienced that? Anyone ever experienced as you're growing in holiness, you're, you're growing uh, at the same time disproportionately in your understanding of who God is, and so the gap between you and him begins to feel even more and more and more, and you feel more sinful. I am uh, objectively less sinful in a sense than I was whenever I was first saved. Uh, there are a lot of areas in my life where the Lord has rooted out certain sins, and yet at the same time, I feel as dirty, if not dirtier, in certain uh, seasons of my life because I am growing in understanding just how good and gracious uh, and loving and holy God is, how pure he is, and so forth. So what is holiness? How would you define that? What is holiness? No one wants to take a risk. Julian! Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, it's to be holy uh, with the, the W spelling of the word, holy unlike us. It's wholly different, wholly other, it's separateness and so forth. Throughout the scripture, whenever it's talking about objects, there's two different uh, ways in which something could be considered holy, and uh, it's kind of two sides of the same coin. One, you have this sort of separate, uh, separate from, so you have this sort of, it's, it's, uh, it's pulled out of something, and then it's linked to something. So it's a, uh, a removing from and a consecration to separate from and a consecration to. It's, it's given for a particular uh, task. So in the scriptures, you'll see things like certain utensils within the temple are called holy. Why are they holy? Because they're only to be used for this particular task. This incense is called holy. Why? Because you're not supposed to burn this incense, this particular incense. You're not supposed to burn it in your home. You're not supposed to burn it outside uh, in the desert. You're not supposed to burn it anywhere except for the temple itself. It's holy. It's distinct. It's utterly different than all other incense. And so that's the idea of, of holiness. And, uh, and so to be separate from something and to be consecrated to something else. So Israel is this, uh, they're called these holy people because they are, have been separated from Egypt. They've been separated from captivity. They've been separated uh, from slavery. They've been consecrated to something to be a light in the midst of a dark world. They've been uh, consecrated to the task of giving glory to God. So you and I, we've been separated from something. We've been separated from a lost and hurt and dying world, and we've been consecrated to a task, which is to make disciples of all nations. And, uh, and so that is the idea of holiness, to be separated from and to be consecrated to uh, certain uh, a certain task or, or something else. And so again, uh, you have this throughout the, the imagery of the Old Testament, especially as it relates to the temple and these objects that are called holy. Kind of like you have these Christmas dishes, like spode. My parents have spode Christmas dishes. You have these Christmas dishes, and you only use them for Christmas, right? If you were to get them out in the middle of the summer, uh, your wife would be very angry at you. Why? Because they're holy. They're only used for this one particular task. That's what holiness is going to uh, connote. So the, the root of holiness is this idea of separateness. And what is God separate from? He's separate from everything that's not God. That's the essence of who God is, is to be unlike anything else. Anything else that you describe him as being like or as is going to be deficient. We've talked about this before with all analogies uh, begin to break down uh, at some point. And so, yes and amen, the Bible is going to oftentimes describe God uh, in ways that we can understand. It's going to use anthropomorphism or it's going to describe him as something in creation. It's going to say that he is, in some ways, he's like a hen. In some ways, he is, uh, he is like a door or a vine or uh, the owner of a vineyard or whatever it might be, um, but in other ways, there is nothing that is like him whatsoever. God is wholly different uh, from absolutely everything. He is separate from everything. That's what really begins to stand out as we look at God, especially contrasted in, uh, in a couple of months, we'll talk about God as creator, and we'll look at how the, uh, the biblical account of God's creation is going to differ from every other ancient Near Eastern uh, sort of myth of creation. In all of these different things, creation kind of comes out of an overflow of the essence of God himself. God, it, it, sort of to give an, uh, an illustration of this, God uh, kind of pricks his finger and the blood that falls down creates 
And so creation is kind of this overflow or emanation of God himself. Only in Judaism do you see this strict division between creator and creation because God is holy. There is nothing that is like him uh, within uh, the world. So if people and objects can be holy, how is holiness incommunicable? Again, there's, there's a sense in which uh, our language and our categories aren't uh, perfect, uh, but I want to, to argue that uh, there is a sense in which this idea of holiness is incommunicable. It's something that God and God him uh, alone is going to possess. Zach talked about this a little bit last week, that at the root of all of our struggles is this sort of, not all of our struggles, but most of our struggles is this idea that God is just kind of a, a better version of us. He's just a man, but he's a really good man. He's kind of like, uh, like Superman. You know, Superman is really, really strong, like super strong, but he's not omnipotent, and, uh, and he's got super good speed, but he's not like literally faster than anything else. He was beaten by the Flash in a comic book. Uh, he is super good, but at times, there are times where he might not make the right, uh, right choice. He is pretty much invincible, but he has a very, very noted weakness, right, in kryptonite. And, uh, and so this is how we tend to think of God at times is uh, we basically just make God this sort of more of a demigod, more of this sort of a partially God, sort of like Greek mythology and so forth, half God, half man or whatever. He's, he's, he's just a, a better version of us. And the Bible's going to say, no, he is wholly different. The, the distance between you and God is infinite, which means that you can go thousands and thousands of degree, degrees higher and you're no closer to being like him than you were before because he is infinitely different than us. That's how I think that holiness is an incommunicable attribute because God is wholly different uh, from us. Uh, as it relates to God, his holiness relates to his being unlike anything else. Everything about God is holy. So as we talk about, even in the, in the next couple of weeks, as we talk about God's love and his goodness, recognize that what makes God's love and goodness so different from our love and goodness is that God's love and goodness is a holy love and goodness. In fact, holiness can, you can kind of understand holiness as being an attribute that would describe all of God's other attributes. So, so in a sense, if, if you want to take any attribute of God that you wrote down earlier, just, loving, gracious, so forth, if you want to put the word holy in front of it, that will then help you to understand the, uh, the infinity of who he is and, uh, and the difference of all of his attributes. I think of holiness kind of as this bridge that exists between the incommunicable attributes of God and the communicable attributes of God. Uh, and so in, in a sense, God's love is communicable, but what makes it incommunicable, in a sense, is the fact that it's a holy love. It's different from the way that I love tacos or the way that I love hiking or even the way that I love Casey and Larkin. God's love is different from mine. It's incommunicable in the holiness of it, its separateness, its distinctiveness, its uh, otherness. So I found a, a couple of quotes here that I thought were helpful. They're in your note, your handout. Um, the first is by A.A. Hodge, and he says, The holiness of God is not to be conceived of as one attribute among others. It is rather a general term representing the conception of God's consummate perfection and total glory 
It is his infinite moral perfection crowning his infinite intelligence and power. In other words, it's not just one attribute among others. It is the qualifier for all of his other attributes. Does that make sense? It is the attribute that you put in front of all the other attributes. It's the adjective that describes all of the other attributes. And, uh, and then uh, R.L. Dabney said, holiness is to be regarded not as a distinct attribute, but as the sum of all God's moral perfection, that same sort of idea. Holiness is what makes God holy other. A few passages that kind of uh, share this. I mean, obviously, there are dozens upon dozens upon dozens that we could look at in the Scriptures, but a few of them. Exodus 15, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Uh, For Samuel 2, 2, this is kind of that idea of, of God's holiness is incommunicable. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Revelation 15, 4, Revelation, I said Revelations, Zach's going to punch me. Uh, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. Sit in that for a second. Although the Bible does say that, uh, that we're holy, and God calls us to be holy, and he calls certain things holy, in this sense, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been uh, revealed. So that is holiness. That's where I want to begin because I think it helps us to understand and orient ourselves around all the other attributes, whether communicable or incommunicable. All the other attributes are summarized by this word holy. Uh, that is what makes all of God's attributes different from, uh, from us. So the rest of the time this morning, I want to talk about uh, these, uh, these omnis. And, uh, and so what does the word omni mean? All, all or every, uh, and, uh, and so that's what omni means. And so uh, the traditional three omnis that uh, theology has recognized about God, omniscience, which is what? All-knowing, omnipotence, all-powerful and omnipresence, all-present or everywhere present or something uh, like that. Sometimes you also throw in there omnibenevolent. What does that mean? All kind or all good, yeah. Uh, but these are, in general, the, uh, the three that have been most kind of expounded upon as being kind of the, the essence of, uh, of deity. And so for, something, for some, uh, something to be described as divine has to possess uh, three, uh, these three uh, attributes of omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence. What I think is fascinating is to look and to see how all three of these are kind of uh, they're kind of a package deal. You can't have one uh, without uh, the other. They kind of logically imply each other. And so I want to do a little bit of a thought uh, experiment. And so imagine if you're all-powerful, or at least you reveal yourself to be all-powerful, okay? So God reveals himself to be all-powerful, but he's not all-knowing. How would we know that he actually is all-powerful? How would we know that there is not a higher power out there that he just doesn't know about. So being all-powerful kind of assumes that he's also omniscient, that he knows that there is no higher power than himself. Does that make sense? You can't have one without the other. Or uh, how can God be omnipotent if he's not omnipresent? If God is not present with you in your particular circumstance, 
maybe he is all-powerful, but he's limited to a particular place. And, uh, and so all of these things uh, begin to logically imply each other. And so we'll only give a few texts and so forth for each individual one. Uh, but what we should see is there is this reciprocity between each of the uh, attributes in such a way that if he is one, then it begins to prove the others. They're kind of like dominoes. They're logically dependent uh, upon uh, each other. So let's begin with uh, omniscience. So kind of a simple definition is that uh, God knows everything. God knows everything, and we'll expound upon that and actually give a better definition in a second. It's actually a pretty good definition, but uh, what happens over time is that false teachers and false teachings come in, and they begin to attack. And so you say something like, God knows everything, and someone might come up to you and say, of course he knows everything. He knows everything that can be known, but there are certain things that can't be known. Like the future. The future is not yet a reality, so it can't be known. So God doesn't know the future. And you begin to see, okay, I have this really good definition, and it actually uh, actually took into account this person's objection, but they've taken it in a different direction. Uh, At my uh, previous church, we had a uh, a statement of faith, and in that statement of faith, or actually we had a, it was called a statement of basic belief. In order to be a member at that church, you have to affirm this statement of basic belief. Similar to the foundational truths if you've gone through the membership process uh, here over the past uh, year or so. And, uh, and so it's just basic things. I believe that, uh, that God is, there's one God, he eternally exists as three persons. Just kind of the basics of, uh, of orthodoxy. Well, in there we said, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And I believe there will be a future resurrection. And we had somebody who came in and said, I absolutely believe that. But I don't believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead. He just spiritually rose from the dead. So we said, well, I mean, the meaning of the word resurrection is a physical thing. That's what the word resurrection actually means. Uh, but we found, just for the sake of clarity, we had to add in another word in there. And so we added the word physical. I believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead. And so you see how we had a we had definition, but we had to expound upon that definition because of some of the attacks. So over time, this simple definition, God knows everything, has been expounded uh, because of uh, people uh, kind of opening some doors that weren't meant to be opened and, uh, and so this is a, a better definition in terms of it's, it's less memorable, um, but, uh, but it's more sufficient uh, to kind of close some of those doors that someone could wander off into. Uh, and so this is by Wayne Grudem. God fully knows himself in all things, actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. God fully knows himself in all things, actual and possible, in one simple and eternal act. So let me give you a, f- a few passages that kind of talk about this idea of omniscience. Job thirty-seven sixteen. Do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? This is actually in a section uh, of uh, the book of Job where uh, God is going to constantly, uh, constantly bring up the fact that Job is limited in his knowledge. How do you have the right to critique God how do you as a creature have the right to critique God when you are limited? You don't know when the mountain goats give birth or whatever it is. Over and over and over, he's going to say, as long as there are certain things that are not in your knowledge, you cannot attack this one who is perfect in, uh, in knowledge. First John 3, for whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than all, greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Hebrews 4, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are 
naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Uh, Matthew 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Matthew 6, 8, do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So on and on we could go with this sort of idea. But not only does God know actualities, he also knows possibilities. That's part of the, uh, the definition. He knows all things actual and possible. This is a, a good example of that. Matthew 11, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. He not only knows what actually did happen, he knows what would have happened had he actually uh, given them an opportunity to re- repent, had, had he done the same things among these other uh, towns or villages that he has, uh, is doing in their midst, they would have repented. Uh, so he knows not only all things actual, he knows also all things possible. There was also this big movement. Uh, it has kind of uh, flickered out. Um, but uh, there's this big movement uh, about a decade ago uh, called open theism. It was the idea that, uh, that God could not know the future, uh, that because the future doesn't yet exist, God doesn't know it. He knows everything that is happening at the moment. He knows everything that could happen, but he doesn't just know, he doesn't know actually what will happen, this idea called uh, open theism, and, uh, and, and contrast that with what the Bible says. Isaiah 46, remember the former things of old, for I am the Lord and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my uh, purpose. Or Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And there's hundreds uh, of other passages that we could look at giving that same sort of uh, idea. So God knows all things, not only actual, but also possible, including uh, the future, and he knows it in one simple and eternal act. He's not just learning as he goes, like some uh, big uh, AI computer or, uh, or something like that. And so therefore, we can see that God's knowledge is innate and immediate. We learn things through observation, through discussion, through scientific method, through these sorts of things. We, our, our knowledge is expanding. Some of our knowledge is kind of shrinking in light of the internet and so forth. But we learned things through an expansion. God doesn't learn things through expansion. God's knowledge is innate and immediate. It's in one simple eternal act. We arrive at a particular place. He's already there, um, and he's always there. It's simultaneous, not successive. God's knowledge is simultaneous. He knows all things at once. He's not growing. And, uh, and I found this... Uh, this quote to be interesting, I didn't know where to put it, so I just threw it at the end. Uh, it's by a guy named Ronald Nash. He says this, divine omniscience means that God holds no false beliefs. Not only are all of God's beliefs true, the range of his knowledge is total. He knows all true propositions. He knows there's, there's no area in which God is limited in uh, his knowledge. Not only are all of God's beliefs true, the range of his knowledge is total. He knows all true propositions. That's omniscience. Omnipresence, definition for that. God does not have size or spatial dimensions. 
and is present at every point of space with his whole being, yet God acts differently in different places. You can see how, again, these definitions begin to get a bit cumbersome, but because they are intended to be pedagogical, they're intended to be teaching opportunities to show some of the potential misunderstandings by just saying God is everywhere, we might think that God is everywhere in the kind of an avatar sort of a pantheism sense, right? And so I crumple up this, uh, this piece of paper and I say, look, this is God. I've got a little bit of God because God is everywhere, so God is in this paper. And, uh, and so he limits it and shows God does not have size or spatial dimensions. When you crumple up a ball of paper, you haven't crumpled up God uh, because God is not a spatial being. Jeremiah 23, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me but again, we shouldn't think of God as uh, spatial. I think that's, that, that's just our natural sort of way of thinking of something. We think of God as a big liquid or a gas. It kind of just fills and expands whatever container it's put into. And, uh, and so God is as big as whatever sort of room he's in or whatever. That's not who God is. God is not a spatial being. There is a sense in which God is everywhere. There's also another sense in which God is nowhere Right, because God is not a spatial being. What does it mean for God to be here? God is nowhere because he's not spatial. He doesn't have a physical presence uh, with him. A fun word to kind of use if you want to kind of uh, impress your friends is ubiquity. Ubiquity is the state or capacity of being everywhere. First Kings chapter 8, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Uh, so God cannot be contained within the temple. He cannot be contained uh, within the, the heavens, even the highest heavens. So it's not the idea that God is just super large, however large uh, you think that uh, he, he is. So think of being at the four corners. Uh, so the, the, the four corners there in uh, like Arizona, Utah, Colorado, and something else. Um, and uh, so you're there, and you put one uh, limb in each corner, and you're in four states at once, right? You're not really in four states at once, right? You're just kind of theoretically in four states at once. You have no idea what's going on in other parts of the state. And so, so we can think about God's omnipresence as if he's just really, really super big. Part of the problem with that, though, is let's imagine, ma- imagine God is 1,000 miles tall, all right, 1,000 miles tall. That's super big, Right? Well, what comfort is that if you are currently in uh, Colorado, and that's where God is, but his feet are in Colorado. Meanwhile, he's laying down, and his head is somewhere in Kentucky, whatever a thousand miles is away from uh, Colorado. Is that going to be comforting to you? Because God can't see what's going on there, because he's not actually there. That's how we tend to think of God. That's not how God's omnipresence works. He's not just super tall. He's everywhere at every point with his whole being. It's not just his feet are in one location. His hands are in another location, and his head is in another location. With his whole being, he is everywhere uh, at, uh, at once. This is part of the idea that Zach was talking about last week when he talked about how simplicity 
the doctrine of God's simplicity is going to assume or build on this idea of his omnipresence. He's there in that moment completely. And, uh, and so what good is it if God can see your need, but his hands are not available to get to you uh, in, uh, in that moment? And yet it says, according to the definition that we read, that he acts differently in different places. His presence serves a, a purpose to bless or to punish, et cetera. So let me ask you this question. Is God in hell? How would you answer that? Okay, who says yes? Raise your hand if you say yes. Raise your hand if you say no. Raise your hand if you think the answer is. It depends on what you mean by that. That is the correct answer. It depends on what I mean by that. Is God present in hell to bless people? Is there blessing in hell? No. Is God present in hell to punish? Yes. Yes. So God's presence in different places is mediated in different ways. God's presence in heaven is only to bless. God's presence on the new earth will be only to bless. God's presence in hell is only uh, to curse or to punish. So that's why when you're reading the scriptures, I've heard it said before that hell is the absence of God's presence. That's not true. That is true in a sense, but it's not true in another sense because God is very much present within hell. He's just presence is there not to bless but to punish. Second Corinthians chapter 1, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So they're out of his presence. Why? Why? Because the context there is punishment. But when you get to Revelation 14, and the, the context there is, uh, is the idea of God actually actively punishing, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So God is present in some sense in hell, but he's present there to punish and not to bless. This is the idea throughout scriptures that you see that God's presence for those who are contrite, those who are repentant, those who are believers, God's presence is the most comforting doctrine. The most comforting thing in the world is for God to be present with you. For those who are arrogant, for those who are unrepentant, for those who are not contrite, God's presence is the most terrifying thing in the world. That's why you'll see the day of the Lord oftentimes in Scripture is a day of judgment when God's presence is mediated to sinful man and the response is, woe is me because all of a sudden I'm in the presence of this uh, holy God. So God's presence is a good thing for those who have been uh, uh, called unto himself and reconciled to him. It is a terrifying thing to those who have uh, not. And so that is uh, omnipresence. Uh, last one here, omnipotence. Omnipotence, not just that God is all-powerful. Uh, omnipotence means that God is able to do all his holy will. Matthew nineteen twenty six. With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Psalm one fifteen three. Our God is in the heavens; He does all that He pleases. Same sort of idea in Psalm one thirty five. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Daniel four. At the end of the days, I Nebuchadnezzar lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
Ephesians 1, 11 that we uh, preached through just a couple of months back. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Notice how often that concept, that word of will or His pleasure, our God is in the heavens, He does all that He pleases, Uh, the will, the pleasure, the desire of the Lord. Omnipotence means that God is able to do all His holy will. So this relates, this overlaps with the concepts of providence and sovereignty that we'll talk about uh, in a couple of months uh, whenever we get there. But really, omnipotence is not so much the idea of sovereignty. It's not so, uh, so much the idea that God does everything that He wants. Omnipotence is more the capacity uh, for God, the ability of God to do whatever He wants. And then we'll get into providence and, uh, and sovereignty and look at Him actually doing that. So it's, notice that He's uh, not able to do all. That's not what it says. It's not able to do everything, but able to do his holy will. So let me ask you this question. Is there anything God cannot do? Give me some examples. Sin, right? What else? Huh? Yeah, go back on his word, right? Cease to exist. Yeah. Change, right? Yeah. We have scripture that explicitly says that he does not change. Lie that is a sin. So Titus 1, 2, uh, in hope of eternal uh, life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began, or Hebrews six eighteen, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to be tempted. God cannot be tempted, James 1, 13, We'll have to wait till we get to Christology to see how Jesus can be tempted, even though he's fully God. But James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. He can't deny himself. 2 Timothy 2, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So there are certain things that God cannot do that are not in any sense a contradiction to the idea of God's omnipotence because God's omnipotence includes the idea that God is only able to do whatever he wants to do and he doesn't want to do anything uh, that is contrary to his will. That's a contradiction. To say that he wants to do something that's contrary to his will would be a, uh, a contradiction. We tend to think of freedom as the capacity to choose between multiple options. Right? That's what we tend to think of freedom. Biblically, though, God is the most free being that has ever existed, and God is limited in his choices. He can only do what's right. But biblically, that's not a restriction. That's not a limitation. That doesn't mean God is less free. It means he's more free. True freedom consists in the ability to refrain from sin. True freedom is not sinning. True freedom exists in the ability for us to do good. Apart from Christ, you can't do good. You have become more free in Christ because now you are enabled to do good. You will be even more free in eternity when you are set free fully from the effects of sin and you are only enabled to do uh, good. So uh, God is actually more free than we are even though there are certain things that he cannot do because those things are not part of his uh, nature and uh, will. So I want to, uh, to, to give some closing thoughts and then have a couple of minutes of discussion and then we'll do some Q&A. Uh, a couple of thoughts. Why are these attributes important? Why is it important that we know these sorts of things? They sound kind of philosophical. Uh, why is it important that we know words like omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence? First off, I don't care that you know the word, but the concept. Why is it important that we know uh, the concept? I thought of at least four reasons here. 
The first one is for the sake of worship. For the sake of worship. They show us the magnitude and transcendence of God and thus inspire worship and awe and reverent fear. Again, they remind us of this infinite distance that exists between us and, uh, and God. And thus, when we combine how transcendent he is with how imminent he is, with how close to us he is in his love, in his goodness, in his grace, and in his mercy, that should inspire in us a tremendous outpouring of, uh, of worship and joy. Secondly, humility. This should humble us. He alone is all of the things that the essence of sin craves to be. Like imagine how often, uh, if we really get down to the root issues of, 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 of our heart's longings, one of these sort of longings is there. I want to be all-knowing. I want to be all-powerful. I want to be all-present. Think about that as uh, husbands. When your wife comes to you with an issue and you don't want to just listen, you want to, in that moment, you want to solve it. You want to know what to do. You want to be there. And you want to actually do it, right? This is the, the longing of the human heart is to be like God in these ways. And so this uh, knowing that God alone is these things should uh, humble us and uh, call us to repentance. Third, dependence. They teach us to be reliant upon God. He alone is self-existent. As we saw last week, he is all-powerful and all-knowing and ever-present, so he can always help. And he's all-good, so he surely will help. And then lastly, they provide kind of a check. They provide an assessment for us. They reveal our hearts. And, uh, and so I think it's interesting. If you think of these things, if you think of God being all-knowing, if you think of God being all-powerful, if you think of God being everywhere, and in, in a sense that frightens you, that terrifies you, oh, so you mean God is there whenever I'm on my computer late at night? Or you, know, you mean God is there when I'm interacting with that coworker? You mean God is there whenever I'm all alone, whatever that thing is? That shows you there's an area of your life that is called to repentance. Why? Because it's, it's exposing sin. Because the, the presence of God should only be a terrifying thing to you if there is sin there. And so it should, uh, it should reflect a hard heart that's in need of repentance. If we're frightened or indifferent to these attributes, it shows us an area of our lives uh, that is in need of repentance. But on the other hand, if we're comforted and encouraged and awed by these, it reveals a softened and uh, contrite heart. I want to spend the next couple of minutes before we do Q&A just asking you again to get in a group, one or two other people. And I want you to take one of these attributes, just one, and I want you to spend a couple of moments uh, just fleshing out how that particular attribute is imperative and profoundly practical uh, to know and believe. How might this particular attribute provide an anchor and encouragement in the midst of your parents' divorce? the death of a family member, the loss of a job, your own dep depression or anxiety uh, or whatever it might be. And let me encourage you, in this moment, uh, you're only gonna have a few moments, so you can't go too deep, but go as deep as you can. Unravel as much of this as you possibly can. How does this doctrine speak into whatever situation you find yourself in and provide encouragement and hope and comfort and, uh, and so forth? So we'll have a couple of minutes for that and then Zach will come up and we'll do some Q&A.